granite father we are going to talk today about the well-dressed christian and uh, what i what i mean by that is a look at the whole armor of god few of paul's passages have received as much sermonic attention through the centuries as has the the whole armor of god i think there is a little bit of a danger we've talked about it so much we have a mantra here where we talk about every day there's something that we put up and there's something that we put down and there's something that we put out and there's something we put on and we talk about the whole armor of God. But because of the way it is structured, if we're not careful, if we're not careful, it can become less important than it is in our lives. And I don't mean this in a bad way, but it can almost become just a children's story about how to wear the armor of God. And children's stories are very powerful. Uh, I don't mean that in any negative way, except that we as adults sometimes lose track of the dynamic of the, uh, the whole armor of God. Paul uses um, a handful, depending on how you count, and you know, probably uses a good six or eight uh, strongly used analogies to compare the people of God to something. We're a, a field, God's field, God's building. Uh, you know, we're, God, we're a body and we're a bride. He goes on and talks about those things. But I think the three that seem to dominate Paul's thinking, uh, first of all, is we are God's servants. Now, I know in our American culture, we're very, we don't, we don't like being called slaves because of our unfortunate uh, past. But you've got to understand, slavery has been the condition of the world forever. And, in, and it was in place. Not, I don't mean it was right. Don't get me wrong. Please don't turn me off at that sentence. Um, uh, but it was in place in Bible days, and they, and they dealt with it. It was a familiar image. And just because we have such an unfortunate history in America that we're trying to work through in regard to slavery, we mustn't forget that Paul's number one use to describe us is that we are servants of the Lord. Now, it's not given with the context of we don't have our life and, you know, we don't have choices and things like that, but it's given in the context of our allegiance, our loyalty, our service belongs to him. That's the number one most used analogy that Paul uh, uses in describing the people of God in the New Testament, we are God's servants. <coughs> he describes himself that way as God's bond slave. Now, the second one that I think is the most uh, frequently used is the idea of a family. He says that we are to relate to each other as a family. And he says that the family itself was given to help us understand the structure of the kingdom of heaven. When talking to Paul, or excuse me, to Timothy, Paul says, Timothy, I want you to understand men that are older than you, you relate to them as fathers. You treat them as fathers. Women that are older than you, you relate to them as mothers. Uh, men of your own age or, or, or maybe younger than you, you relate to them as brothers and women as your sisters. He says the way the church works is to understand, understand the concept of family. So family is another big image. But I think perhaps the 
third most frequently used and perhaps some of the most graphic description of the Christian life is in the context of an army, of a soldier. And the, the um, account of the uh, wearing the whole armor of God is one of the most ex extensive passages. Now that's in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. We won't read that today. Number one, because we're so familiar with it. And number two, we've read it recently uh, in some other studies that we've done. But I do want to direct your attention to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we want to get a military mindset if we can. You then, Paul writing to Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now he says this about our perspective as an army military men and women will suffer. They will go through deprivation. They will go through putting themselves in danger. And we say hats off and a salute to our veterans and, and present military personnel. God bless you and God bless you for what you do and what you have done. And we salute you and thank God for you. He says that's the nature of the military. He says, endure suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then he says this, no soldier gets entangled with civilian pursuits. Why? Because his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The aim of the soldier is to please the one that enlisted him. Um, that's why Paul made so much sense to us when in reference to the Holy Spirit, he said, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Um, he said, our job is to please the Lord in all things. It was from this analogy. And our goal is to do the will of God. Now, before we get into this idea of pleasing the one that called us to be a soldier, I, I want you to understand that if you're from a background like mine, which is a great background, but um, I, I always felt incredible pressure to be sure that I was doing the will of God. And, and I think we ought to. We ought to do everything in our power to do the will of God, not only in the big things. It does matter, you know, how you live your Christian life. It does matter who you marry. It, it does matter where you work. Those kind of things matter, those big questions of doing the will of God. But if you're not careful, you can become so works-oriented and doing the will of God that you, I, I've heard people say, well, what's the use? Every time I mess up, I step outside the will of God. But we need to be uh, encouraged by the idea that God brings us back into his will. You see, I grew up being told, uh, based on Romans 12, there's the good will of God, there's the acceptable will of God, and there's the perfect will of God. I was told there were three levels of the will of God. Now, what we shoot for is the perfect will of God. You never make a mistake. You always make the right choices. You say, can you live like that? Yes. If you're Jesus, you can live like that. And, and, no, seriously, Jesus is the only one who ever has lived like that. 
He's the only one that's lived perfectly in the will of God. But I want to set you free from the idea that, well, I, I want to do the perfect will of God, but um, I've made mistakes. So the best I can hope for is the acceptable will of God. And I've made so many mistakes. I'm, I just hope I'm doing a, the good will of God. But that scripture does not teach three levels of the will of God. We don't have people in here. Some of you are doing the good will of God, which is, you know, it'll get you by, you know. Um, some of you are doing the acceptable will of God. It's not perfect, but it's acceptable, you know. And none of us are doing the perfect will of God because first time you make a mistake, if you embrace that kind of theology, you step out of the will of God and can't get back into perfect. You know, if you ever strike out in the major leagues, you can never bat a thousand. Never. The best you can do is 999, and you, but you'll never bat a thousand. Paul was not saying there's the good will of God for those that uh, aren't, aren't living the way they ought to. And if you really try, you can be in the acceptable will of God. But our goal is to be in the perfect will of God. Those, those were descriptive phrases. Paul was saying, uh, be in the will of God. And the will of God is good. The will of God is acceptable. And the will of God is perfect. And we're going to find out that it's not perfect because we keep it perfectly. We're going to find out that the will of God is perfect for our lives in the way God works through even our failures and makes all things work together for good. Now, we know that not everything in our life is good. We know that not everything we do is good. God doesn't even make everything we do good. But God has um, uh, the ability, it's, it's, uh, it's the word we get synergy from. God is able to take the good, the bad, and the ugly and make good come out of it, even if it was rebellion against him. We know that does not excuse rebellion. We know that does not excuse sin. But it ought to teach us that God is so committed to our getting to heaven and pleasing him that he can take it all and make it work together for good. So I'm not, I'm not saying that it doesn't matter how you live. I'm saying be encouraged. God is that committed to you. God is that committed to you. So I wanted to make that clear. Now, I also want to take, I, I, I will try not to do more than 90 seconds. There's a trending teaching um, in, in a lot of uh, interstate, uh, interstate, internet um, sites on this idea of the armor of God. Um, I think we as Christians get thrilled with some new or aberrant teaching even. It's like 2,000 years of church history is not just enough and we got to straighten it out. But one of the things that's trending online today is that when Paul was talking about the whole armor of God, he wasn't talking about a Roman soldier. He was talking about the Old Testament model of Jehovah where it talks about the armor that God wears. And um, I'm, I'm beginning to see that enough. I, I just wanted to give, starting now, 90 seconds to it. In the Old Testament, there is a description of God as warrior, and it's, it's in different contexts, in different places. The breastplate and helmet is described as God wearing it in Isaiah 59. This is in your notes. You don't need to look it up. Um, Nahum 1 and Isaiah 52 talk about the 
it refers to the shoes that are worn and the, and the feet that are blessed. Isaiah 11.5 talks about God's belt. Uh, Isaiah 49, God has a sword and a bow. And in Genesis 15, as well as Proverbs 30, uh, as well as many other passages, the Lord is, is seen as our shield. And um, then, so, so some people say, no, Paul wasn't talking about Roman soldiers. Paul was talking about God and his armor. The average Jew, their mind wouldn't have run to that collection of scriptures scattered here and there. I think the most logical thing is that there was the ubiquitous Roman soldier. He was everywhere that the New Testament letters went to. It would have been the most obvious thing that Paul would have referred to. Um, not that it matters in the sense of you know, if you, if you believe it was a Roman soldier, you'll go to heaven or hell because of that. But I just want to bring a little bit of clarity with respect to those who think Paul was talking about Old Testament passages. Um, I think we got to be careful with that because number one, the earlier descriptions in the Old Testament go back and forth between God's representation of himself and our representation. It goes back, the, the, the analogy begins to break down because it's talking about God in this one passage, us in another. And one, one Bible scholar said, well, it just means that we wear the armor God wears. Well, it begins to break down because God does not need armor. We do. We do need armor. We're told to put the armor on. Um, but it, that view forces mixed images and the comparisons break down. I think the most direct application of Ephesians 6 is for the believer to stand successful in attacks from the enemy. He says, stand therefore. Paul could have been talking about an army from anywhere, a soldier from anywhere. But with due respect, I think we make it unnecessarily complex when we try to make it something that doesn't seem to fit the most legitimate and the most logical interpretation. And that is Paul, who had been in prison, surrounded by Roman soldiers. Roman soldiers were everywhere. When he said, wear the armor of God, and he started talking about these pieces, the average mind of everyone that read the scripture would have run to the Roman soldier. So I think that's what we got. And I'm not trying to make a, you say, well, well which, is, which, which, is, which will get me to heaven? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You can believe that it was a, you know, a Norwegian battler. You can believe it was a Kenyan warrior. But the most logical, I think, is the is the. Uh, and 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 I want to talk about the word today because I think the I think the the tendency, especially among young Christians today, because of the access to the internet, is the idea of the word deconstruction. What we've been taught is wrong, so we've got to tear it down. And, and reteach and re represent the scripture. And I think that is a tragic mistake. And I think that uh, for every good piece of fruit that is yielded, there's two dozen bad pieces of fruit. Um, for some reason, the, the, many Christians today have embraced the idea that the church has been stupid for 2,000 years. And that we, we're just now beginning to get a little sense, and it's their generation that is doing it. And, but Jude says, the truth that saves your souls was once and for all delivered to the saints. And I think we need to go back to our roots and really embrace that and understand that instead of getting our theology from the History Channel. Well, that's, that's just a mild opinion that I have. 
So what I want us to do today is, if you will indulge me, I want to take these six pieces of armor, and there's seven if you consider the covering of the Holy Spirit. The covering of the Holy Spirit doesn't have a piece of armor, but it is an atmosphere. He says when he talks about the helmet and the breastplate, the belt, the shoes, the sword and the shield, he says, and all of this should be covered with the, with prayer in the spirit. What he was saying is all of these pieces of armor must be energized by the spirit. So though there's not a piece of armor that says Holy Spirit, please understand the only way the armor of God works is to be energized by the Holy Spirit. We are to be anointed by the Spirit and filled with the Spirit and covered with the Spirit. Christianity does not work in human strength. It works in the strength of the Spirit. It's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my Spirit. And I, I hope I wasn't offensive to anyone in what I was just saying. I just think the, the God to, of this age is knowledge. The God of this age is is my truth. Our kids are being told, you know, whatever you believe is it, your truth is the truth that you need to embrace. So that's why we're in confusion over bathrooms and sexual identity and, and, um, and all kinds of things because we have become a society that my truth is what we judge the world by, not God's truth. And that is going to lead to a lot of trouble. And I'll talk about that um, at some point. Maybe today, maybe, I don't know. We'll get to it. Why did Paul choose these six objects? There's a reason for each of them. Each of them can be summarized by a word. Now, the first piece of armor that he talks about, it seems odd because I know as a kid memorizing, I start at the head and work my way down. When I pray every morning for the, uh, the armor of God, I seem to start at the head and work my way down. But the first piece of armor that he mentioned was the belt of truth. And the reason for that, I know this is going to be very simplistic today, but I think it's important that we understand why he's given us this armor. Uh, the first piece of armor is the belt and the belt was not, it wasn't Paul saying, we're going to start with the belt because something's got to hold your pants up. That's not what he was saying. The belt, at least with a Roman soldier, the belt was the anchor point of everything that he carried and everything that he wore. Now, when he was mobilized to fight, there may be very little attached to the belt, um, but when he needed to move, everything had something, some connection point. Everything um, had some connection point to the belt. Some variations, even of the shoes, not always. We're not sure about that. But the belt represents truth. Now, truth is the most precious commodity we have. When Jesus was going through his trial, even Pilate said, what is truth? How are we going to know truth? Jesus had made it clear, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I am a truth or I'm a version of the truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he said, it's so important that you understand I'm the truth because no one comes to the Father but by me. We are being told if we have any kind of religious inkling at all that there are all kinds of paths to God and all kinds of truths. And we're being told that whatever your truth is, is the truth you should embrace. But that is such a dangerous place to be because just like not every belt is going to fit you, not all truth is going to lead to truth. You see, 
You shall know the truth, the truth shall set you free. Um, that's in John 8, 32. Jude 3 says this, Beloved, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, and I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. You see, apostasy was already setting in. He said, I have looked around at the churches, and I found it necessary to tell you to go back to the gospel that has been preached to you. Put your roots in there. Understand that it was once and for all delivered to the saints. That's where truth is. Paul was so intolerant of my truth matters, whatever it is, that this is what Paul said to the Galatians. He said, if you have a messenger, now I know we've got we've to teach the truth properly. I know that. But Paul said, if an angel from heaven if, if, if a supernatural being shows up and gives you his calling card and it says Gabriel and he teaches you anything that contradicts what you have already received, do you know what he said? Let him go to hell. Let him go to hell. Let him be accursed. Let him be eternally separated from God. The greatest failure in the churches in the West today is the compromise of truth the compromise of, of God. Now, all of us, all of us are liable to be corrected on things. All of us are liable to grow into things that we thought were, were wrong or, or to let go of things that we thought were right. That's growing up. But we have to understand that Christianity is rooted and grounded in biblical truth. An absolute standard is an essential for Christian living. Forgive me for repeating this. I know we've hammered this a lot on Wednesday nights, and I can't remember if I mentioned it on Sunday or not. But when the scripture says that where there is no vision, the people perish, as I've said, we've all used that. Pastors have all used that to say, we got to have a vision at our church. We've got to have five things that we're striving for. And there's nothing wrong with that. We do need that kind of vision. But that's not what that verse means. That verse, when it says, without a vision, the people perish, this is literally what it means. Where there is no supernatural word that stands as a truth to the people, they will perish and they will be unrestrained. You see, we take pride on freedom of speech as long as it's people that agree with us. We want to have freedom of speech, but the problems, there's nothing wrong with freedom of speech, but the problem is this, when we make our truth the truth, a nation will falter when it rejects an absolute truth. A church will falter when it rejects absolute truth. A family will falter when they reject absolute truth. A life will falter when we reject absolute truth. You say, Pastor, do you really believe that? Absolutely. I believe it absolutely. You say, well, that's, that's not popular. It's not popular, but we are in a culture that says any truth matters as long as you really believe it. But this is what the scripture says. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end it produces death. And whether we like it or not, whether we understand it or not, whether it grieves our heart or not, or hurts us or not, there is an absolute truth and the most dangerous thing we can do. And this is what I hear from pastors more and more and more. Well, there's different ways of interpreting that. Yeah, it's the right way and the wrong way. 
Now, now don't, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. There, there are, you know, there are passages that are tough when Paul said, of course there's a resurrection. If there's not a resurrection, why would you have prayers for the dead? That is a tough passage of scripture. Uh, it, it does it mean that we should pray for the dead or was Paul saying, well, even in your culture, you have prayers for the dead. So you understand the nature of resurrection. Was Paul using a secular point to illustrate truth or is there something about praying for the dead? That's a tough one. And you can decide on this side of that issue. You can decide on that side of the issue and it doesn't take you to heaven or hell wherever you fall on that issue. I know what I believe. I believe Paul was just making reference to a popular culture. He was saying the whole, the whole culture you live in understands that there's life after death. I, I think that's all he was saying. But some believe this, some believe that. And there are some scriptures which you can say, well, there's different ways of interpreting that. You know, baptism. Some churches pour, some people sprinkle, some people you saw today, we immerse. And, and I, think, I think there are people that love God with all of their heart that make a case for sprinkling. Some people with all their heart make a case for just pouring. Some people say, no, the word baptized means immerse and, and we believe in immersion. But the mode of baptism doesn't take you to heaven or hell. I mean, there, there are different ways of interpreting it. Like a friend of mine said one time, he says, well, whether you sprinkle whether you pour or you immerse, sounds to me like the only important part is stopping your head. Now, you know, I, I, I don't think that's good theological reasoning. <laughs> Loved ones, I understand there are questions about certain passages, and this could be true or this could be true, but as long as you commit to the gospel, there's room for that. But when the gospel clearly says that this is right and this is wrong, then that's not open for different views. Then that's not open for interpretation um, because what happens then is anything you don't agree with, you simply say, I don't uh, interpret it that way. And that's a dangerous path. I used to get so upset. I, people would ask me Bible questions and they'd get so angry with me and they'd say, well, I, I just don't understand. And, or they'd say, you haven't convinced me. And we'd go through all of this stuff and I thought, boy, I'm not nearly a teacher. I thought I was. I mean, I, I, I live and die by explanations. I must not be as good of an explainer as I thought. And then I began to realize the more and more I listened, when they said, I don't understand it, uh, or, or you haven't convinced me, Eight times out of 10, they weren't saying I'm in the dark on this. They were saying, I disagree with you. And, and now, and, and, and you know, that's okay. I don't think I'm a perfect teacher and, and, and it's okay to disagree with me, but don't hide behind. There's a different way of interpreting these things. It's, you know, I don't believe, you know, that, I don't understand Jesus is the only way to heaven. And I, I listened to somebody, I explained it a half dozen different ways. It's nobody in this church, somebody that was wanting to come into the church, but they didn't want to accept Jesus. And I said, you know, what we've got here is not me being a poor communicator. What we've got is that you refuse to believe Christian doctrine and you are wanting me to give you membership because you disagree and I should be loving and charitable to your disagreement. And I said, we can't do that. We believe there is no way to heaven except through Jesus Christ. We believe every other way is marked by lies and liars and false teaching. And if you want to get to heaven any other way than Jesus, you'll have to do it from someplace else than here. 
And, and guys, I want to tell you the battle in today's churches <coughs> is not over worship styles. The battle in today's churches is not over which version of the Bible do we use. The battle today is, is God's law an authoritative word for us. And we've got to take that very seriously. Um, so I want to tell you, especially our young people, I want to tell you to be, be careful with this popular term deconstruction. Because what deconstruction is most of the time is it's saying the truth of the gospel is offensive to me. So I will dig around it and I'll change it. I'll make it where it's not nearly as offensive. And I'll call that Christian scholarship and redefining the truth of the gospel. And what you've done, you've done the same thing they did in Romans 1, where not wanting to retain God in their knowledge, they begin to teach their own doctrine. And this is a, this is a frightening thing. The Bible says that God turned them over to that mindset. We're going to talk next week about, um, um, I don't know how to define it, We'll talk about that next week. Um, I don't want to give the whole message away. But um, the, the, the biggest challenge to the church right now, it, because it's the, it's the most vulnerable, it makes you seem the most naive. It makes you seem the most uneducated. But the challenge that the church has got to face is, am I going to go back to the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints? Am I going to go back to the purity of Bible doctrine? Am I going to go back to it's Jesus and Jesus only? Or am I going to let Jesus be a God among the other gods? Okay. Don't fall prey to pop theology. And please, this is a particular pet peeve of mine, stop getting your theology from the History Channel. Uh, oh, let's go, let's go. You say, well, what do we believe, Pastor? We believe, remember now we're talking about the belt of truth. We believe in the verbal, plenary inspiration of the original scriptures. Now that's wordy, so don't worry about writing it down because it's in your notes, or I think it is. Okay, verbal, plenary inspiration of the original scripture. Now, what do we mean by the original scripture? We believe that God's word is fully inspired um, when, when, in any language, but when it's true to the original scriptures, uh, the Greek and Hebrew, there's some verses that are difficult to translate into some languages. So we hold to inspiration in the original scriptures, but we also believe that God's word is bigger than linguistic problems. And we believe that life comes from God's word in any language. Uh, so there are some languages where some concepts are difficult to, to translate. There's some languages where uh, the concept of the Greek or Hebrew is, is easier to translate. I love, uh, you know, King James says, God inhabits the praises of his people. I love that. Um, I, I, I have a friend from Japan that read that and said, this says that when we praise God, he moves in and sits on the throne we have prepared for him. I like that. I like that. I think that language, it, 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 you know, elucidates a little better what the original was saying. But, but what I am trying to say is this. 
we, we believe, we know that inspiration is with what's called the autographs. Those of you at CIU and uh, you know what we mean by autographs. It means the original scriptures, but don't think that God's word is so frail that it can't be life-giving and powerful and inspired outside of the original languages. Oh, I wish I had time to talk about this, um, but, but I just don't. Now, we believe in, in inspiration. That means God breathed. You see, the, the, the scriptures are God breathed. You see, I have a concept in my mind, and that concept in my mind begins to articulate in my vocal cords, but it doesn't do anything until I, I breathe. My breath is what gives expression to my words. And God says, these are my words inspired. They are the very essence of what I am given out. So we believe that the scriptures are God's heart. We believe in plenary inspiration. That means we believe that, um, well, let's go, let's go to verbal first. Verbal means that the words are inspired. Um, that's, and, and there are good people in the church today, good people in the church today, but they are dead wrong when they say the, the message of the gospel is about a story. It's not about words. It is not about a story because you can make a story say anything you want it to say by changing the words. And, and I, that's the trouble I have with, and I, I believe Eugene Peterson is in heaven. I believe he's a great man of God. But that's the problem I have with the message. It's the problem I have with some of the other versions that focus on the story, on the narrative, instead of the words. Instead of the words. Because the story is important in, the, in using the words that God gave to tell that story you don't think words are important, I, I challenge you to try this with your wife. You can go home today and say, honey, looking at you, your beautiful face makes time stand still. And she will kiss on you and love you and say, you're so sweet. You can go home also and say, honey, you got a face that would stop a clock. <laughs> now, you have just said the same thing. But how many of you would agree the words make that work or not work? No, we believe that the Bible is verbally inspired. We believe that every word that was given in that Greek and, and Hebrew and, and that little bit of Aramaic text, we believe that those were words chosen by God. Peter says, Paul implicates or, or indicates that men of old wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, carried along by the Holy Spirit and preserved from error. God, and only God could do that. He let their personalities bleed through. You read the Gospel of Luke, you read the book of Acts, it's clear you're reading the writing of an educated medical man. But when you read Peter's epistles, this is a fisherman talking. This is a fisherman. He's like Larry the Cable Guy. Oh, they may not talk good English what like I do. You know, this is a fisherman writing. But they were preserved from error even though God allowed their personalities to come through. That's the way the, the kingdom of God is. He allows our personalities to come through. He doesn't preserve us from error. 
That's why those of you that say, thus saith the Lord, you better be careful because you are not preserved from error. You may think you are, but you're not preserved from error. I'm not preserved from error. And my prayer every time I preach is that, Lord, I will preach your heart, not my heart, because it's so easy for my heart. It's so easy for my frustration, so easy for my hurt, so easy for my disappointment to bleed through unless I let the Lord help me. But I'm still not preserved from error. I mean, unless you think I am, then we will go with it if you think I am. But like a friend of mine was introduced as a truly great man of God. And he was so taken aback by the introduction on the way home. He said, I, I wonder how many truly great men of God there really are. And his wife didn't even look at him. She just said, well, at least one less than you think. And so... <laughs> But we believe in verbal inspiration, but listen, plenary inspiration. That means, that means every word, every word is inspired by God. And that we need to, we need to start treating the scripture with that kind of respect again. Um, you say, well, I can't read Greek and Hebrew. Let me tell you something else. You brought this up. Don't blame me with it. You brought it up. But stop being bullied by people that say, well, I disagree with you. you. You just don't know the Greek word that's used there, or you don't know the Hebrew word that's used there. I guarantee you about 98% of the time, they don't know the Greek or Hebrew word. They've gone to, to Strong's Concordance, and Strong's Concordance is wonderful, but it is just a very, very, very very superficial introduction. And we better stop trying to be Greek and Hebrew scholars when we're not Greek and Hebrew scholars. You say, well, what if I am a Greek and Hebrew scholar? Well, then go back to the writings of Peter and Paul and even those who knew the original languages, even those that knew the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, even they were guilty of wrestling the scriptures to, to, to their destruction. Knowing a Greek and Hebrew uh, uh, lexicon does not preserve you from spiritual corruption. And don't ever be bullied by somebody that says, oh, well, you just don't know what that word means. I almost guarantee you they don't either. But I want to tell you that that corruption and deception and false teaching, it knows no boundaries. It was abounding when all we had was the Greek and Hebrew text. Are you guys understanding where I'm at? We are not second-class Christians. Our understanding is not second-class because we may be reading God's Word in a, in a second uh, language. That's, that's not the case at all. But, but there is a principle we have to latch on to. Justin, am I doing okay? I mean, you've been here 25 years. Am I doing okay? Okay. That's why we need to pay attention when Jesus says things like, let him who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying. That's or another, as another translation puts it, take care how you listen. Paul said this in Acts 20. I won't take time to read it all, but Paul said, listen, I'm not going to be here with you forever, but understand this. After I'm gone, there are going to be people from the outside that will creep in, not sparing the flock. And this is what he said that's more frightening. He said, but also be aware that within yourselves, Within yourself. That's why those of you that think you have some kind of novice or new teaching, you need to humble yourself before God and see what's going on in your heart. 
He said, because out of your own midst will spring up teachers, that their goal is to destroy the faith and to destroy and lead away disciples after themselves. It's Gnosticism. And John wrote against Gnosticism. And forgive me this little sidetrack for just a second here. I won't preach this long on every piece of armor. This is, the belt, this is belt Sunday. And I won't, I, I, I won't spend this much time on every piece of armor. But Gnosticism said that there's, Jesus came and there's spiritual truth. But there's the spiritual truth that commoners know. And there's spiritual truth that spiritual giants know. And you need teachers to explain to you the truth of God. They called the commoners, they called them the sukikoi, the soulish ones, the ones that only understood this much. But if you don't want to be a sukikoi, if you listen to the, to the spiritual teachers, you can become a pneumatikoi, a spiritual one. And don't, don't let it bother you if your pastor doesn't understand this because he's just sukikoi. Don't let it bother you if this is not acceptable church doctrine because the church for hundreds of years has just been sukikoi. But I am being raised up through the history channel to become a pneumatikoi. Loved ones, we are so deceived and we're doing it to ourselves. We somehow think that we have tapped into a new spiritual power, a new spiritual level. And what did John say? He said, you don't have any need that anybody teach you. Now that sounds like it goes in contradiction to the rest of the New Testament because Paul said, God has put teachers in the church. You need teachers. And what was Paul, John saying? He said, you don't have any need that anyone teach you. John was saying this, you don't need these spiritual blowhards that tell you, you just haven't had enough enlightenment yet. Don't listen to them. You don't need them. What did John say? He said, abide in the church of God. Abide in the word of God. Abide in the spirit of God. Abide in the son of God. He said, you stay in these four corner posts that have been presented to you already. You don't have to go outside for something else. Now we all have to learn. We all will have times of correction. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm telling you, this is the great sin of Israel. I'm sorry. This is the great sin of Judah. Listen, listen to me. Jeremiah said, my people have committed two sins. And I want you to listen with your heart. I want you to listen to the Holy Spirit. He said, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken the living water. Forsaking the living water is sin number one. What was sin number two? And they have put their trust in empty wells. And that's what I see happening in the church of the Lord Jesus today. We have forsaken living water and we have sought to replace it with wells that cannot hold water. And the water that's in there is mosquito laden and filth infested and we're calling it new revelation. Take care how you listen. Let's go on and talk about something else, okay? There's the belt of truth and then he says you have the helmet. Ephesians calls it, boy, I got to hurry. Ephesians calls it the helmet of salvation. I like what Paul calls it in another passage. He says, uh, and the helmet of hope, of hope. Okay, key concept number one is truth. 
I have to accept a truth that's beyond my logic and beyond my origination. Number two, I have to understand that the whole Christian life is hope. Not I hope so, or maybe it'll work out. But hope is the, uh, is the word for the idea of process. Process. You remember we've talked about the tenses of salvation. The New Testament says I was saved. The same New Testament says I'm being saved. And the same New Testament says I shall be saved. Listen, we are able to live in victory because we know we are not the best we're ever going to be. We're not the most spiritual we're ever going to be. You say, well, pastor, I'm just not as spiritual as I want to be. I know that, me neither, but you're more spiritual than you were. You say, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not what I ought to be. No, none of us are, but you're not what you used to be either. So, so Christianity is rooted in the idea that I have truth that comes from above and I am in process of becoming of becoming everything God intends me to be. Your notes put it this way. The biblical concept of hope has to do with an ever-increasing kingdom, an increasing glory that is being manifested in you. The Bible puts it this way. You and I grow from glory to glory, and we grow from faith to faith. We are growing. It's important for us to know that God will complete what he has begun in us and through us and for us. So I've got a belt of truth. I've got a helmet that affects my thinking because I know I am in process. I'm becoming more and more like Jesus. And I wear a breastplate of righteousness. And like the Roman breastplate, it's basically two parts, part to cover the front, part to cover the back. But righteousness for the child of God is two parts as well. First of all, it has to do with my standing. And secondly, it has to do with my living. Now let's take the living because those of us from a holiness background, we believe in holy living and guys, we ought to. You know, the Bible says, let the one that names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Don't, don't buy into a cheap grace that says I never have to confess and I never have to bring up my failure. Yeah, it's, it's, called, it, it's, it's called keeping accounts with God. We need to depart from wickedness. We need to confess our sins. We need to ask for forgiveness when we do wrong. You say, well, Jesus took care of that at the cross. He did in the eternal sense, but we don't live in the eternal sense yet. We're still, you know, again, take it home. If it doesn't work at home, it probably doesn't work in church. You know, um, you, you don't, you don't uh, get married and at that wedding say, I love you and say to you, hear different, it stands. And just because you make a transgression, that doesn't mean your spouse is going to divorce you. They're, they're probably going to stay married to you. But I want to tell you, it'll be a lot better if you know how to say, I'm sorry. You never go home and say, well, you promise for better or worse and Right now we're in worse, so just, you know, tough it up. No, I, I guarantee you life will be much better if you, if you learn to say, honey, I am sorry. She knows you're sorry. She's already forgiven you. But it produces a healing for her to hear you say, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. Uh, and, and it's the same way we, we live in the here and now. That's why God tells us if we've done wrong to someone to apologize to them. 
if we've mistreated someone, to go and repent and make restitution. And if we need to do that with each other, what in the world would you do embracing a teaching that says we never have to mention our failures to God? Now, it's not to help his feelings, but it's to keep our relationship open. You see, we, we need to live right. And there is the breastplate of righteousness that has to do with me living right. And part of my defense, part of my welfare as a Christian is living right. But loved ones, the other side of that is my standing. I have the righteousness of God in Christ. And I'm not going to heaven because of my behavior. I'm going to heaven in spite of my behavior. I'm going to heaven because of the righteousness that God sees in me through Jesus Christ. Yes, it makes a difference how I live. That's why we'll have the judgment seat of Christ. If we live a sloppy Christian life, if we live a fleshly Christian life, we will answer for that at the judgment seat of Christ. But we don't go to heaven because of our works. We go to heaven because of his righteousness. See, I changed clothes. I took off my robe of, of, of righteousness. Isaiah put it this way. He said our righteousness. He didn't say our evil. He said our righteousness is as a filthy rag. In other words, the best we've got to offer is nothing more than a filthy rag. And I don't mean to be crude, and we've talked about this before. The, the, the word that was translated rags, it was used as death cloths to bury the dead. It was also used to describe, and forgive me for being so blunt, it was used to describe uh, uh, what was used by a woman during her menstrual cycle. And he said, he said think about that. It's not the kind of thing that you flout before others, but he says, your best is the same thing. It's the same thing. So he gives us his robe. He gives us his garment of righteousness. We used to sing it when we were little kids. I tell you the best thing I ever did do was take off the old robe and put on the new. The breastplate of righteousness. Now our living may fail, but our standing will never fail. I like what Jude said. Now unto him who's able to keep you from stumbling. We don't have to stumble. We don't have to sin. We don't have to fail. But the sad fact of the matter is that most of us do. I know I do. I, I, I don't fail because I have to. I fail for whatever reason. Sometimes it's neglect, sometimes it's overt disobedience, sometimes it's, it's just something I forgot. But I don't, I, I don't have to fail, and he's able to keep me from stumbling. But whether I stumble or not, he will present me faultless before the presence of his glory. Let's hurry on. Come on, y'all, come on. I haven't got time to stay here all day. Let's go to number four, the shoes, the shoes. Now the shoes are very awkward to translate from Greek into English. I don't know about other languages, but you know, it, it's the shoes of the gospel, preparation of the gospel of peace. It, it's very difficult to translate, but I think, and not difficult to translate, just wordy to translate. I think it has to do with uh, with confidence and, and what we'll just call peace. I think the shoes have to do with peace. See, a soldier had to know, and this is the way they were called greaves, the kind of shoes that a Roman soldier would wear. Um, they had spikes, sort of like football spikes today. 
um, it enabled him to hold his ground if he had to swing and fight and duck and thrust, he was able to hold his ground because the shoes did not care if it was muddy. The shoes did not care if it was rocky. He had um, a, a sole on his shoes that enabled him to hold his footing. It was also a type of shoe that enabled him to keep advancing even when normal shoes would not have made it easy to keep advancing. And it gave him confidence in motion. I think, even though it's a tough one to translate, I think we can summarize the shoes in peace. Okay, now God's giving me truth. God's giving me hope. God's giving me righteousness. And he's also giving me peace. We must not misunderstand or undervalue peace. It is vital in our walk with God. How did Paul begin most of his letters? Um, grace, mercy, and peace. Mercy wasn't in all of them, but grace and peace. He said, you need to understand as you receive the word of God, you need grace, you need peace. Peace be unto you is what he's saying. And let me tell you this about peace. Peace is the umpire of our souls. That's why it's so important for us to guard our conscience. And Paul said when he was on trial in Jerusalem, he said, you guys still with me? Because I'm about to leave. You don't want to, you don't want to miss me leaving. Quitting. He said, I have done everything in my power to live with a clear conscience because there is something powerful about peace. When you, you can endure a lot when you have the peace of God. You can go a long way when you have the peace of God. Um, and that's why we say peace is the umpire of our souls. And that's why God basically, you know, we, we talk a lot about, I want to know how to know the will of God. It's really very simple. There's sometimes you have to do this. You have to do that. You, sometimes it's, it's a little complicated. You got to, you, you have to make a multi-layered decision, but generally speaking, you can know the will of God this way. Does my heart have peace or is my heart unpeaceful. God gives you an umpire in your heart and it's peace. Do you have peace or is your peace disturbed? And most decisions I make, whether it's about a sermon or a financial decision or what, do I have peace or is my peace disturbed? Um, we better go. I have to save that for another time. Number five, we have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now I've spent a lot of time talking about the value of the word. I've talked about the verb, verbal plenary um, inspiration and that the scriptures are God breathed. I don't need to repeat that right now, but in, in our assemblies of God doctrine, we've got an old statement that I think they're trying to reword. Um, it says that the Bible is the all sufficient guide for faith and practice. That was written a little over a hundred years ago and it has served us well, all sufficient guide for faith and practice. But I think a more modern way of saying it is this, this is what we believe about the Bible. The Bible is the completely adequate guideline for what we believe and how we live. Completely adequate. In the days ahead, we will see three types of churches emerge, but only one of them will be successful, truly successful. Number one, you will find churches like Ephesus that believe the Bible, but are mean-spirited. They've lost their love. 
You've all known churches like that. I have too. They preach a gospel that is straight as a gun barrel. They, 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 they believe in the full verbal plenary inspiration of scripture. But the problem is they just don't like people. You know, they, they, they would never welcome someone with a different political view to their church. They would never welcome someone that embraced a homosexual lifestyle to their church. They would never welcome anybody that had any particular sin. There's grade A sins and grade B sins. But in, in the name of honoring the word of God, you are not welcome here. Now, if you can change everything about your life, get straight, then you're welcome. You see, they don't understand the difficulty, the challenge of letting everyone feel welcome while you don't accept everyone's sin. That's a tough balance to walk. It really is. And even good churches have trouble with that balance. You know, we, we, we will let someone, we'll let people come in and sit in our churches every Sunday that are living in adultery or having an affair. And we say, you're welcome. God will help you. But we don't know how to welcome someone in a homosexual lifestyle because we don't understand that sin. And that's grade A sin. That's grade B sin. And they're walking in such blindness. And that's why the homosexual community doesn't come to most churches. It's because we, 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 we have a tendency, even when we believe the word, to just not like people. And I've known pastors like that. They love to preach. They just don't like crowds. Okay, there are other churches. They say, well, we're not going to be like that. We're going to be a church of love and tolerance. And anyone's welcome here. And that's the way it ought to be. Anyone ought to be welcome. But in the name of love and tolerance, I think a majority of churches in America are now compromising Scripture because they don't want to be offensive. I see this from people that I know love God with all of their heart. You know, if God's going to save this community, he's going to have to go through liberal churches. If God's going to save this group, he's going to have to go through liberal churches because they'll compromise, but at least they love people. Now, I was struggling with a message not long ago, and I, I was really struggling. I didn't feel like I preached well, didn't get a good response. And I said, Ramona, I said, I know you're always going to be my cheerleader, but tell me, was this okay? She said, I told you it was good. If, if I didn't think it was good, I would tell you that I didn't think it was good. I'd find a nice way to do it. I said, what do you mean find a nice way? Well, if I ever say, you know, maybe you ought to let Corey preach the second service. That's a good way. But no, no, I, I know friends I love with all my heart and I know them. I know they love the Lord, but they are willing to take the teaching of scripture and lay it over here so that everyone feels loved and accepted. And I, I want you to know, I, I, I love you. You are accepted at this church and we are learning how to express that. We are learning how to show that. There's nobody we don't want coming to our church unless they're coming in to just start trouble. And I mean, I'll just tell you up front, we don't want you go somewhere else if you're just coming to start trouble. But no matter what has marked your life, 
You are welcome in our church. You just have to bear with us as we learn to stretch our arms wider. But I also want you to know, we cannot ignore the teaching of Scripture. We cannot change the teaching of Scripture. We cannot change what we believe Jesus said because it offends you. Oh, and see, I don't even know if I'm saying that well. But there's a third group of churches that embrace Scripture and grace. This is what John said about Jesus. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. That means He was full of mercy and kindness. But what happened to the rich young ruler that would not obey Jesus and do what Jesus said? The rich young ruler turned and went away sorrowful and Jesus watched him go. See, we want to have a church that says, oh, okay, wait, 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 wait a minute. We'll, we'll let you in on associate membership. Or maybe, maybe we're a little, no, Jesus loved him. Jesus offered this man something phenomenal. Do you realize that Jesus offered the rich young ruler, you come and follow me. He didn't offer that to everybody. The demoniac who would have been a great testimony. And every time Jesus preached, he could have said, I was possessed by thousands of demons. Jesus set me free. Jesus, let me come with you. And Jesus said, no, your mission is here to this group. He didn't just let anybody come, but he speaks to that rich young ruler. And the Bible says this, Jesus looked at him and loved him. He loved him. But when the rich young ruler said, I will serve you on my terms, Jesus let him turn and walk away. Loved ones, stay away from a church that will change what it is to accommodate your sin. They're not doing you a favor. They're not loving you. They're trying to build their numbers. They're trying to, to prove something that doesn't need to be proved. Um, so there's the church that believe the Bible but are mean-spirited. They will not succeed. There's the church that is loving and tolerant, but they've, they've desecrated the message of scriptures. They will not succeed, but there will be a handful of churches that will love the lost no matter what they're dealing with because we're all sinners. We're all fallen. We're all fall short. But the difference is what you do with the grace of God that's extended to you. That's what makes a difference. If if God can, well, God can, for every time God finds a church that's full of grace and full of truth, that is an invitation for the Holy Spirit to come and do incredible things. Okay, one more thing, and then I'm going to wrap it up. The shield of faith. When all is said, the Christian life is marked by the fact that we must believe. We must believe. See, We've got, we've got to have truth. We've got to have hope in the process. We've got to live right and stand right. We've got to operate by the peace of God and the word of God. And at the end of the day, we have to believe. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And you hear it all the time. If I could just hear an audible voice, I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. It happened in the Bible and they said it thundered. Some said it thundered. No, God could speak in an audible voice and the human heart will find a way to wipe it away. 
Well, it wasn't an audible voice. It was just thunder. Uh, if I could just have a miracle. Oh, I believe in miracles. And sometimes miracles can be proof. Jesus talked about if the miracles that had been done in Capernaum had been done in, in other places, you know, they would have repented a long time ago. Miracles can be used of God. But God did not choose to let miracles or an audible voice be the currency of heaven. He chose faith. Do you know that before we were called Christians, we were called believers? That was our primary characteristic. We believed. And Peter puts it this way. He said, you rejoice even if for a little while you're suffering. He says, so that the proof of your faith, more precious than gold which perishes, tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And that belief has resulted in joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. Faith does something that nothing else can do. That's why you, you can't do much with people that say, well, God's let me down and he's going to have to really... He's, he owes me an apology. No, he doesn't. And there's nothing I can say that will change your mind. You have to come to the place, not where somebody explains God to you, because you're not in a condition to receive the explanation. You've got to believe. You've got to believe. I think the church spends too much time trying to accommodate people's offense with God. I, th I really think we do. I think we, we spend so much time trying to explain why God did this and not this or didn't do that but did that. And the fact of the matter is God has put that person you're trying to convince, he has put them in a place where the only thing that will save them has to surface in its belief. Well, I just love Jesus. Well, even that's because he loved you first. I love him because he first loved me. Okay, how do, we, how do we wrap this up, Pastor? This is where I've been waiting for you to get all day. Okay, so we can go home. Here it is. Let me give you some summary statements. I won't re-preach, but let me give you summary statements. This is what we need to take away from the armor of God. Number one, the Christian life is rooted in his revelation of truth, not our opinion or reasonings. You know, there are teachings of Scripture that will make you mad, that will make you hurt, that will make you confused. But our only hope is the revelation of truth that God gives us through the scriptures. Number two, though we are certainly called to righteous living, our true righteousness is our link to the complete unfailing righteousness of Christ Jesus. Number three, we are victorious because salvation is both an event in time I can tell you where I gave my heart to the Lord. I can take you to that location. Salvation is an event in time, but salvation is also a process that is part of eternity. Number four, the spirit bears witness with us through the peace of God. God said, I know life is tough and decisions are tough, so I'm going to give you a down payment. You know what a down payment is? A down payment is something you give the bank and it's your proof. It's your proof. I'm not giving you all the money now, but I'm giving you a down payment as proof that I have the means to pay it all. 
and the indwelling Holy Spirit when you come to Jesus, it, it's not the solution to every problem that you'll have, but it's a down payment where God says, everything will be set right. Everything will be set right, and it's the peace of God. Number six, or five, our victories are grounded in God's unfailing word, the sword of the Spirit. And number six, God himself quickens us with the ability to believe. He says a shield of faith. With the shield of faith, you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the enemy. In other words, he says everything hell throws against you. If you will believe, you'll win. And then, of course, we said everything superintended by the Holy Spirit. Now, loved ones, this is how we fight. And this is how we win. It's not a children's game where we put on a paper mache helmet and have a plastic sword. God said, you have truth. You have hope. You have righteousness. You have peace. You have my written word and you have supernatural faith. And the Holy Spirit is filling you. That's how you win. Father, we're out of time. Help us as we leave to leave with the victory that you promised us. Here's how we want to end today. Um, if you're watching online and you need prayer, especially if you want to give your life to Jesus, there's a number that's coming up on the screen. If you'll call that number, somebody will be ready to talk with you and pray with you. And they'll, they'll walk you through whatever you need prayer for. And they'll be ready to help you. If you're here in the auditorium, um, or, or, or in Brown Chapel, if you're watching there. There are prayer teams that are going to be coming to the front. And if you're one of the prayer teams, I encourage you to come on now, move into position. If you want to give your heart to Jesus, they are here to pray with you. But if you have a need, maybe you need healing, maybe you need direction, maybe you need the grace of God to be poured out at some need in your life, the prayer teams are here to help you. We never, we never, it, it, it's, it's complicated to do a live stream service and a live service and multiple location service all at the same time. But one thing we want you to know is that we will always make time for your needs to be met and for you to be prayed for. And we will never, we will never skimp on an opportunity for you to come to the presence of God. So I'm gonna ask everyone to stand in, in 30 seconds, you're going to be free to leave. But I want to say this, if you want prayer, before you turn that way to leave, would you turn this way and come and let the altar team pray for you today? They'd love to help you any way they can. I love you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you his peace. The Lord be gracious unto you. And let's uh, keep our hope in him until we get together again and, uh, and rekindle the fire. God bless you. I love you.